0: Or you can go to children's church, whichever is your preference. If the adults would like to stay in the room for this sermon, you can. Or you can go to kids' church. Bye, everybody. I love, love, love Christmas. Don't you feel like uh, when you're singing carols that you should be in the swamp? right at the beginning of the fourth quarter, for all the Gator fans in the room, you know? I know, I know, we've got some fan bases. I don't like the Gators, so I'm safe talking about this. But it's so awesome. I was there last Saturday. You put your arms around your friends, you sway. Shouldn't we just do that when we're singing carols? Doesn't it feel like that would be appropriate? Apparently, I lost you at the swamp. And so, uh, we're just kind of carrying on from here. I, I hope that it's been an amazing Christmas season already. Um, I love Christmas. I love what Ryan was sharing. Um, he didn't amplify a lot on the Advent conspiracy. There's just this idea that Jesus did not come onto this earth so that we could have a tree and a lot of lights and be uh, joyful about Santa Claus only, although you can find great joy in many of those things. But what he really came is to create this conspiracy, this upside down kingdom, this beautiful world where we're, we're literally people are like this. They're like saying, you know what? How can I um, buy socks and give them to the homeless, attached with the gospel, so that the grace of Jesus Christ can carry on? Or as one of our Bible study groups did, how can we give up our party so that we can actually sit together and share life, so that children at the Florida Baptist Children's Home can receive gifts in their lodge? I mean, that, those are kind of the conspiratorial thoughts that you start to have when you're when you're a part of the kingdom of God, and when you're excited about being a part of the kingdom of God. I, I feel like I feel like I want to pray for my children that the greatest thing they look forward to is. And, and I'm not anti, you know, Claus. So you're not going to hear sermons against St. Nick up here. So, uh, but here, am I that I don't want them to engage this season. With the greatest highlight of their lives is what happens by some jolly fat man on the 25th morning. And, and but I, I want it to be bigger than that, you know, more than that. I, for instance, maybe this year, and I'm too early in it to call this, but I'm going to put this down as a possible ace of spades, was the the best Christmas moment of 2013. It's, it's going to be tough to beat this. Was standing in, Kim, with you guys. I was, I was in a room. What night was this? I'm, I have no track of days and nights now. It was, it was Friday night. And I'm sitting in thinking, this is the kingdom of God. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. I was, I was smiling at the faces of many of my friends who were serving. And, and I was actually plopping multiple, I was standing beside Mike that enough said that makes for a great night. We're trading conversation. I'm putting things on people's plates that I have no idea what they're, what the food might be because it was extraordinarily diverse food. And, and I'm, I'm looking face-to-face with, with more than 50 people groups at the International Learning Center, serving them Christmas meal and loving the fact that every tribe and tongue and nation and people weren't all confessing of the greatness of the mercy of God yet. But we're hearing that story. And I just thought, God, this is like a... This is like a little revelation moment. I'm telling you, it's going to be hard for me to beat that when I, when I, um, I don't know how much I can tell, so I have to be a little bit careful here. But when I saw five different, um, six different people on stage sharing their favorite holiday season, several of which don't know the Messiah of this season and just hearing the stories, it was powerful. I mean, that's the kingdom of God. There's an advent here. Here's the, the word, the definition of the day. I think it's, I think it's in your notes. I love Advent. Advent is the eager expectancy of something much anticipated. I would say that for me, standing in that line at the end of the night, Friday night, when I went, left that one to go to my third event of that night, which was an exciting night, when I, when I went to that third event, I probably had a hard time focusing because I was just thinking, God, God, what could happen when every tribe and tongue and nation and people hang out with a whole slew of us who, if you were in Bible study this morning, are with ever-increasing glory becoming passionate for the things of Jesus Christ and His glory is making manifest in us, among us, and through us. And then that is being made known through all the people groups that are making up Jacksonville who many of them will scatter back to their countries. I mean, this could become beautiful. Thank you for the. their smattering. But I mean, it just it become beautiful of this of this picture of the kingdom of God. The advent is this expectancy. And it, and it, it, I don't want I don't want to walk away saying, you know, the greatest thing we expect is that we're going to have a big meal and a great Sunday morning. Or I don't know what morning Christmas will be. But God, we want to expect. and And based on this, I want to share a story with you out of the second chapter of the book of Luke. And, and we're going to do this in two parts over the next few weeks. Um, we're, we're going to expect with anticipation that the Messiah who drew near and who put on flesh and He came and lived among us, that He still draws near. Okay, that's good right now. But I hope as we look at the life, anytime I think of the Advent, my mind and heart. In fact, I talked about Anna last year. There's a whole other bent on Anna this year. Simeon and Anna are my two... Favorite Advent people. So as long as God allows me to be here, expect around Christmas to hear something about them because I just love them. There's an expectancy of their hearts that something vast is about to happen, and it could become powerful. I think last Christmas Eve I shared this. Um, I grew up with. I don't. He died when I was eight, but uh, until I was eight years old, the best papa on the planet was my papa. He he just created this urgency about christmas and he also created this tension in my life i think i've shared this with you but i'll tell it again anyway because it's christmas and we should tell stories over and over right and so i mean i love my papa what he would do he would always um i'm trying to see if there's kids in the room no spoilers here he would always okay let me just tell it this way he would always call several times throughout the year and have great conversations with me in this deep voice and he would tell me who that deep voice was. No, no spoilers any children in the room. And that was so exciting for me. I would hang up the phone. And then he would call back and he would talk to me like he was my papa. And he would, he would talk to me. We didn't live in the same town as he did. So here's ideas for you and your grandkids. He would talk to me and he'd say, little buddy, little buddy, there are, there are presents with your name on it. And I would just go, are you kidding me, papa? And I, cause I knew there were. He said, and there, I mean, he would literally go and pick up the boxes and he would start rattling them. And he would hold them, hold the phone out, and rattle them, and I would ask questions: How big is it? How how much does it weigh? Papa, will you do me a favor and tear the edge? You know? <laughs> will, will you? I mean, he would call. He was so excited, and then then we would all load up on Christmas Eve, and we would go up to their house, and this was the torture that, that my parents did to me, and my grandparents did to me, and my uncle and aunt. They found such great joy in this kind of stuff because we would roll in and then we would have this family meal. But the first thing we would do is bring my brother and in into the midst of the tree and we would, he would show us Papa would walk back. I think I honestly think he was more excited than we were. If you're wondering where my excitement comes from at times, it's generational. I mean, I think he was, he was absolutely ecstatic about this and he would come back and we would stand at the tree and he would just look and go, man, that's a lot of good stuff, boys. Y'all want to go eat? <laughs> like, are you kidding? And I am not exaggerating. This is not pastoral exaggeration. This also carried for generations. My mother remembered this. My papa, we would sit over this meal. Um, Cynthia and Lydia in the room, can. I think Lydia just went out to do kids' church. They can vouch for this. My grandmother spoke love to us. She had very few words to say in life. I don't remember more than a 100 and the whole time I knew her. And she died when I was... Thirty or forty years old, but um, but she spoke very little. But she showed great love by cooking. Thank you. There's that is amen worthy. My mother has carried on that tradition. When Nana comes to town, our kids can't wait. My mom has already called us. I've been cooking for three weeks. I'm like, I love you, Mom. When, when are you coming? I mean, and and my she speaks that way. So my grandmother would make this great meal, and then Papa would pray. And I, I, kid you not. This is not a childhood exaggeration. He would pray for 15 or 20 minutes. I mean, he was, he would thank God forever. I was like reaching over and putting an arm on Papa. You did. Have you had your quiet time today? You know, every time I was at their house, I would fall asleep to Papa praying. But he just walked with God. He loved God. So we would pray for, you know, forever. And then we would eat and we're sitting in there and my parents are a little bit on the, in the strict side well, don't you move? Don't move up from that table. You know, wipe all that. I mean, now our kids go get to play Xbox or something. We sat and we sat. It was like a three-day sitting. I mean, that part wasn't. I mean, we would sit forever, and it was there was an eager expectancy of something much anticipated about to happen. And then this is the worst part. I've never done this to my children. We're, we we need to do this this year because we live near Saint Augustine. They would say at the end of the meal after the prayer. After the president's looking at them, no touching yet, after this, this unbelievable meal that we would sit at for 17 hours, then we would rise and it's the moment of, let's go get the president. No, let's now go see lights. I wish I was kidding. That was my family. McCaddenville was 48 miles away from Spartanburg, South Carolina. Any Carolinians know McCaddenville. It is the spot to go. The whole town is dedicated to lights. You can go drive through it. On Christmas Eve, it only takes 11 hours. It's backed up up Highway 85. Everybody does this. When we finish, I'm like, are you kidding me? That, that was the expectancy, the joy. Advent, as we're into Advent season, I mean, there is, imagine, I mean, I'm a little dude. I am so excited about Christmas. I have so much built up, and there's this expectancy. I love this definition. The Advent is the eager expectancy of something that is so anticipated. In Luke, the second chapter, we find someone that has an incredible level of anticipation. And I believe over um, this week and next week, our choir is just going to lead us in worship for a season. So over this week and the 22nd, there's about four things that I think we should learn from Anna that are just profound And I I honestly believe today, I just want to set you up this way, that you should have expectation today that God is going to change your heart and your mind. As I was praying through this week, I think I may have put all four things in your notes. And as I moved on through the week, I just realized there is only so much we can think about today. And there really are some things that are profound that you should think about today. And more than that, I believe that today is a transformational moment for us as we wrestle with the Scripture and with the heart of Anna, and more importantly, with our own heart toward the things of God. So before I dive into Scripture, would you pray with me that the Spirit of God will tune our hearts to the presence of God? And since I've already said that much. I'll just reiterate that. Holy Spirit, stir in this place today in an unprecedented manner. Let your Spirit move us with expectancy. God, I'm just super honest in the room, as many of us already are. This season has been filled with busyness to this point. And God, I pray that there will be something that far exceeds busyness, that there will be a holy urgency and expectancy, that there will be an an anticipation of who you want to be toward us. And God, that, that our lives can be postured through this season in a conspiracy manner so that we taste and see that you are good. And so, Jesus, as we talk through these next few minutes, I pray that you will teach us something from a beautiful person out of scripture of a beautiful work that you want to do in us. And I pray that in Jesus' name for his sake and glory. Amen. In Luke, the second chapter, verses 36 through 38, there was a prophetess. Her name was Anna. She was the daughter of Phanuel. He's the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after their marriage. And then she was a widow until 84 years old. I love this sentence or this fragment. She never left the temple. There's just an incredible statement. She never left the temple. Here's what she did. She worshipped night and day, and she fasted and she prayed. And that's that's just enough said for the day. I want to read the next verse, and we'll kind of think about the next verse in, in the coming weeks. But coming up to them at that very moment, them being Mary and Joseph with the Messiah. She gave thanks to God and she spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. To understand this sentence and this level of urgency, I think to set this up, you really have to understand the temple and what's going on in the temple and. In 2 um, Chronicles chapters two through six, I'm not going to read all of that. I just want you to understand when you read the words, she never left the temple. There's something powerful in 2 Chronicles chapters two through two, through six. There's this intricate de- detail given to the actual building of the temple, and it was a powerful and beautiful thing that was built. And this temple that they built, it was it was to hold. And actually, Solomon was wise enough to say, "This cannot hold the living God." So better said it was a place where people would be able to go to meet and encounter the presence of the living God. I mean, it was such a powerful place and there was absolute, utter, great detail and tedious facets given toward the building of the temple. And then when you get to 2 Chronicles chapter 5, you will actually start to read of some of the, some of the history and the beauty and the passion and the wonder from the details of the from the details of the furnishings, to the intricacies of the wall, to the ways that they um, created the crown, to the way the colors that they brought. And then they began to speak in chapter 5 of the legacy that was brought in, of, of the building of the ark, of the wonder of worship among the people. And then they brought in the ark to the temple, and it got quite profound. For in bringing in the ark, they brought in the manifest presence of the living God. If you've been in Bible study this morning, we were all over that. When we were asked in our room, what's the presence of the living God looks like? It looks like something that brings you silent, that brings you a sense of awe, that is the absolute falling of the presence of God. It's a place where the priests and pastors are silenced because it is all God, all His glory, all beautiful, all wonderful, and the people are broken before Him. And that's not even the open of the temple yet. That's just the walking in of the ark. Here comes the spirit of the presence of the living God. And so that's that's chapter 5. And I, I just wonder, based on a prior sermon, if as they were bringing the ark in, it was just every six steps. Like, here we go. This is going to be powerful. We're going to put this down. We're going to sing songs because, after all, we're an Advent people. And there is something that we eagerly anticipate. There is something that we beautifully expect. And here we come. And then, And then you just move on in to chapter 7 of the second book of Chronicles where Solomon actually stands before the people and said, you've done an amazing work, but it's no longer about you. It's no longer about what you've given. It's no longer about your sacrifices because everything that you gave, everything you did, it was for his glory. And so right now we're going to turn everything we have as we as we ideally have done this whole process. It is all for you, Lord. And then he engages in this prayer and it is just this prayer that leads to a falling of the presence of the Spirit of God. An Advent, if you will, is an eager expectation of something much anticipated. That's the Advent season. That's what we're about. And as the Spirit of God fell, it was awesome, it was powerful. And back in chapter 5, and again in chapter 7, the people, when they could cry out, simply just said, You are good, you are good, and your love, O oh Lord, it endures forever and forever, from one generation to the next generation to the next generation. We're Advent people, there's an expectation among us. You see, Advent people who gather and call this an Advent season believe that there is something that we should anticipate about the living God. And when when we read a sentence, maybe quite possibly one of the most profound sentences in my mind in all of Scripture, there's a lot of sentences that are super profound in all of Scripture, this is one of them, when we read these words, Anna never left the temple. You should read that in lieu of what I just shared about the temple. She just kind of parked in there and lived there. And when I read about Anna, I just wrote down, um, these, these are, you know, four E's because we're pastors and we're supposed to alliterate. I just wrote down four E's that are just huge in her life. Like, and Anna approached this with eager anticipation. She never left the temple. I mean, she longed for the presence of God. She lived in the middle of the presence of God. She never left the temple. And, and I think I've already shared this, so at the risk of being redundant, there was extraordinary detail given to the temple when they were building the temple, when it was in place. And I believe that she had that same thing. Something in her heart, as she saw, saw the level of detail that was given to the temple, but more importantly, in chapters 5 and 7, the falling of the presence of God, she had this advent heart that, God, I don't believe that you are complete in manifesting yourself. I don't think that you are complete in all that you want to do among your people. I have this incredible urgency and expectancy about your move and your power. And therefore, I am never going to leave the temple of the living God. I am going to part my life there, and I am going to have eager anticipation and expectation there because I am an Advent woman, and I believe, God, that you are not going to cease to fall among your people. She never left the temple. And unless that you leave this and think, nice Christmas story, you have to understand what's going on here. From Malachi to Matthew, there are 400 years of relative silence. I don't believe she experienced that silence. There are years, I've just finished reading all the prophets, and it's a pretty tough road for Israel and Judah as they are walking away and going to their own way. It is incredible a challenge, he wrote. And the people of God are scattered all over the face of the earth, and they're being drawn back together. And in the middle of all that, in the middle of absolute chaos, in the middle of silence, in the middle of a loss of passion by many around here, here, around her, here's what you should know about Anna. Anna never left the temple. It had very little to do with whether or not for 400 years, by the way, things were pretty silent. It had very little to do with what was going on with the people chosen by God. And had everything to do with one woman, along with a fellow named Simeon, who the verses are just prior to her. These two guys sitting in the middle of this and saying, God, we have seen you move. We have seen you here here's Hebrews in action. We have we have conviction about the things that we're not seeing right now, but we are passionate they could come in about. Faith is the conviction of things that are not currently happening, but God, we fully anticipate. We don't see this. We don't see things going on. Here's here's the reality of who we are. We will never leave the temple. I I think in the world where there is tremendous hurt, There are tremendous questions. There are tremendous ramifications, if you will. There is a tremendous amount of silence. Our country is becoming increasingly silent about the things of God. What really is desperately needed among the people of God who have a heart for God are not what Israel and Judah experienced at the time of the prophets or the 400 years of silence. What is desperately needed among the church of Jesus Christ is an eager expectancy and a whole slew of people who in our day and our understanding theologically of who we are, and I'll see if I can unpack that just a little bit, we never leave the temple. A group of people who sit with urgent expectancy living out the advent and saying, God, in the midst of this advent, we believe that your kingdom come and your will be done. We have seen you work in the past. We know that the word put on flesh and came and dwelt among us and we have beheld His glory. It is the glory of the one and only. It is filled with grace and truth. We not only believe that, but that Word came and lived among us as the Scripture teaches us, spoke to us about how to live on this earth. That Word came and gave its life for us. That Word came before giving its life and fleshed out life for us. That Word brought hope for us. That Word brought peace among this world. And then in that giving life, death, That word was resurrected. And if that were enough, that would be enough. But more importantly, that word that put on flesh, that dwelt among us, that we have seen grace and truth, invited us in. And most of us in this room have come to know that word in a personal, intimate manner. And in that, you have been invited into His death His burial, and you have been resurrected in Jesus Christ. And in the midst of that, you have been placed in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has been placed in you. You have been hidden with Christ in God. And therefore, there should be a pretty significant number of people who never leave the temple of the presence of God and her pursuit pursue with passion this joy that, God, we expect that you're going to do something amazing in our day. We, we, we're we just, here's, here's what we've seen, God. We've seen some people craft a temple and your spirit fall. We've seen Anna. We've seen her stand in the midst and we've seen your spirit just move toward her and she saw the Messiah. Father, we've seen many see the Messiah crucified, dead, buried, and resurrected. We've seen your early church, Father. We have seen your early church rest themselves in the temple of your presence. And we have seen you fall with power. We have seen your early church scope out the world and move in faith all over the world. And so as a people like Anna, we're going to sit and rest in your presence because here's what we understand. We are now the temple of the living God. We are a holy nation. We are a chosen people. We are a royal priesthood. And we are set apart for the living God, for the declaration of His glory. And so therefore, God, we can't, as a people in You ever leave the temple, but apparently we can quench and grieve the Spirit of You. And so, Father, move that out of our presence. Move us in the middle of You and give us as an Advent people the very heart of Anna that we never, if you will, and I don't know how to say it another way, we never leave the temple because here's what we expect. Here's what we expect. Here's what we expect. We expect that the very same God of the Old Testament, the God who dropped the Messiah in, the God who spoke into the heart, As a New Testament church, that same God wants to do something that we could never ask or imagine right here, right now, among a group of people who will never leave the temple. That's, That's the passion of the Advent. That is the heart and hope that we have as a people. Advent, by the way, is defined as an eager expectancy of something much anticipated. People who are just sitting and saying, holy God, we are the temple of the living God. I saw on Anna an expectant preparation. I just wrote that. I don't have a lot to elaborate on this. She prepared the way. I love just the simple words that it said. And when Anna was saying, God, I think that you're going to move, it wasn't haphazard. Hope was not a strategy. Vision without the ability to execute, it would have been hallucination for her. So instead, she went to the most logical place, to the very essence of the presence of God in her day. She parked there. And I love what scripture says. It said that she fasted. And she prayed. And that she worshipped. And that she set with eager expectancy for the move of the presence of God. I, I, I don't see this as a lot different than the detail. If you want to go to Second Chronicles and just read chapters. I don't see this as a lot different than the detail that they took to actually weave together the temple of the presence of God, temple that would hold and yet not be able to hold the presence of the God in the Old Testament. She went and said, look, I want to, and this is where you don't need to be all icky about this. Oh, God, this is motivational. No, no, no. She postured her life in such a way that the eager anticipation and expectancy of God would vibrantly fall. When we start saying, oh, you never leave the temple, you can sit back and go amen all you want. How about this? When we are a people of fasting and prayer and worship and conversation about the things of the living God, we have postured ourselves for an advent of the mightiness of God that we cannot imagine. She, she She was expected in her preparation She postured her life so that she might experience something of God in such an epic proportion that she could never have dreamed or imagined. And she did. There's just two truths that I kind of gained out of this, and they're they're very simple. One, One is this. There must be a deep conviction in your heart if you want to share a heart of Anna that God is your sufficiency. He's enough. I know that sounds really simple until you actually start to say, Jesus Christ, are you all that I need? I just believe if we're, I'm going to walk away from here and say, "Look, we we really need to evaluate ourselves today and ask how do we park our lives in the midst of the temple of the living God." Here, here's what's got to happen: there's got to have conviction and preparation, and there must come a deep conviction of our heart that God is our sufficiency, that He is more than enough. There was something so grand and so magnanimous and so beautiful about the living God that Anna was willing to relentlessly wait. should hear that again. There was something so beautiful and so wondrous and her heart so turned to God that she was willing to relentlessly wait for him. I think that every one of us can relate to the outcome. In fact, that's why I want to put my arm around you and sway like a gator. You know? Because it's just such a, a, a warm moment that the King of glory has come, that God has put on flesh and come among us. We're singing carols. We should drink hot chocolate. We should hug somebody. We should tell them we love them. You know? That's what Christmas is. It's just this happy, wonderful season. All of us like that. Here's the challenge for many of us. We don't like the wait. And it was 400 years of silence. And here's what you should know about her. She worshipped in the middle of the wait. She fasted in the middle of the wait. She prayed in the middle of the wait. We like the Messiah coming. I'm wondering if we have a conviction about the wait. If we're convicted that God in His supremacy and His all-consuming power and in His great goodness is more than enough that He could truly satisfy our souls. She found her sufficiency again. I love this. What she discovered in this text was a manifestation manifestation of God in a completely glorious and utterly unimaginable way. As I read throughout the, the scripture, old and New Testament, I, I don't think that Mar- that Anna would say to you, "This is how it's going to go down." I just think that she really found great joy in the wait, and I think what she would what she would probably say to many of us. and I may be getting ahead of myself right now in my little thought pattern, what she probably would have said it was is that while the long expected Jesus was powerful, you know, what was really great joy for me. It was the wait. It was the getting to know the heart of my Father. He was getting to know the fasting and prayer and worship, who He is. And it was really in my life being consumed with His sufficiency. And until that is true of us, don't expect the outpouring of whatever you're looking for from God. It is not the outpouring that you need. It is Him. And you will find that as you expectantly wait. You just sit in the middle and more and more your heart becomes full so that in the middle of that waiting, when some couple comes walking in and it's a powerful move of God and most people in the room don't even recognize it, they don't even see it, you're so turned on to the things of God, you're so moved by the things of God that you look and hone in and you go, oh my Lord, while that was great in Chronicles, here you are. You put on flesh. Are you kidding me? I knew this was prophesied. I am seeing it. As Simeon said, I can die now. This is amazing because I have waited and I've got to know your heart and I've got to know your heart. And I have been, I have been convicted in the 400 years of silence that God will still move. And if you don't move when my heart is still beating, it doesn't matter because I'll stand in your presence because I've found in all this waiting that you are enough. And so God, please, thank you for a conviction of your sufficiency. I wonder if God is enough for you. Because all of us like the outcome. I think Anna would say to you, it's not the outcome. It's not the fire falling. It is not the tongues where everybody talked in different languages and they got each other it's not the baby Jesus walking in it is the joy of intimacy with your God I just I'm, I just wrote two thoughts one is that there's a conviction that God is our sufficiency I think secondly out of that conviction is produced an unhindered preparation Conviction will lead you to preparation. Just I mean, I, this, Nothing is new today. She literally paved the way for what she experienced to occur. And I, I think I've already preached all this, so you've kind of heard part, point two right now. I think she would tell you it was worth it. I think she would tell you in this fasting, in this prayer, I'm not positive, I'm not positive that if she hadn't prepared, she wouldn't have recognized the Messiah. And I'm pretty positive that many of us don't Ephesians 1.18. Um, feel free to write that down and look it up and begin to pray it in your heart. Many of us don't see God at work because we're A, not convicted that He is enough, and B, our lives are utterly unprepared for His work. And so when the glorious Messiah does something amazing in this world, it just passes us by, as it did multitudes in Anna's day. But here's, here's what you should know about Anna. She, she never left the temple. She never, she never left the temple. And here's, you know what she did? She fasted. She prayed. She worshipped. She would tell you it was worth it. Most of us in this room are waiting for something because we're on this planet. We're waiting for someone. We're waiting for something. We're waiting for some hope. We're waiting for some healing most of us are waiting and for many of us in this room the waiting is extraordinarily painful you're not alone in this and i think what anna would say is in the middle of all of that silence and that hurtful painful season i found a peace that surpassed understanding that guarded my heart and mind forever in christ jesus Because I found that what I waited for was not going to be fully and completely answered on this earth. It was already answered in Him. He was all. He was consuming. He was a consuming fire. Can I just even be more brazen? Every one of us in this room are waiting for something, not most. And I wonder if there could become a peace that begins to convict... No, no. This is what I prayed. I haven't prayed for a peace. I am wondering if there can become a, a deeply spirit-inspired unrest in our soul that will draw us to a point of conviction about the sufficiency of Christ. That God would fall on this place today and create within us an absolute repentance and brokenness for the things that we have allowed to move us out of the temple, if you will that there would be a spiritual unrest among us until we begin to turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full on His wonderful face. Every one of us isn't here. And I think the issue that hinders us is that we don't wait with conviction and preparation. We don't wait as if the living God Himself is fully on edge and prepared, as the Scripture says, looking throughout the land for those whose eyes are rested on him looking for places to pour out his presence i just i'm praying that we will wait with preparation that we will prepare our hearts that this will be the food that we eat as jesus said in john 4 that it will absolutely abandon us conviction and preparation i just wrote down these thoughts If you're just sitting in this room and many of our students are in the room, they're always saying this. You know, if you're really passionate, you're saying, I want to change the world. Let me just ask this question. If you're wanting to change the world for the sake of Christ, what is your conviction and what is your preparation? If you're sitting in this room right now and you're saying, you know what? I am so anticipatory of the day that I might marry someone. If that's your prayer, what is your conviction and what is your preparation? If you're sitting in this room and saying, you know what, I long to live generously. I long to be able to hear these stories of people who are buying socks, serving ILC, giving away to Aishi, Haiti, you know, sustaining what God is doing in this fellowship. I long to be that person. Okay, then great. Here, here's the question. What is your conviction and what is your preparation? Because in the middle of all these questions, there were thousands that surrounded Anna that were the chosen people of God that had very little, if any, conviction and zero preparation. That was, I was maybe at least. If you're longing to step in the fray of orphan care, and you've been moving in that direction, what is your conviction? What's your preparation? If you're longing to be the one who takes the biggest heels as a senior adult, you know, that Caleb senior adult that's just saying, I'm 85, I'm like Anna, she's 84. I still I want the big hills because I'm on this earth and it's for the glory of God. Here's what I would ask then. What is your conviction? And what is your preparation? And how is the gospel manifest, manifest through you through the next generations? We need you to be convicted and prepared. If you long to raise kids whose hearts are turned toward God? I love Blackaby, he said, the greatest passion of a parental heart is this, that their children will be conformed to the image of Christ. If that is your greatest prayer, what is your conviction? And what is your preparation? If we're longing for Mandarin, let me just let this be my last question, because I could go on with these for days. If you're in a fellowship, and you're just sitting with this group of people, and I'm assuming that if you're giving up two or three hours of your Sunday morning, you have some level of conviction about this. If you're just sitting with this group of people and we're just sitting in this room and saying, God, we really do want to see you do great things among us. We really do want to see you move in this city. We really do want to recognize that for the last 25, 30 years, we've lived in a place that is about a 100 times grown with people We really do want to drive the streets and also see all the cars and all the people and all the hassle. And some of you that tell me the story of the two-lane dirt road, we know all that's here. But here's what's beautiful, God. You have given us all these people, and they are a hassle. But they're also the people that were made by you for your glory. So, God, with all of this that you've handed to us, can we do something great for your glory And I think the answer would come in this manner, not from me as your pastor, but from Anna and from the living God himself. If that's your prayer for us as the church of Jesus Christ, then what is our conviction together? And what is our preparation for the Spirit of God to fall in this place in ways that we cannot possibly imagine? I am praying, I am praying, I've entered this sermon praying for a slew of people who would say, Father, we believe that you are all that we need. That you are more than enough. That your grace and your goodness abounds toward us. That you have moved in spirit and in power in the days of the Old Testament many times over. That you moved in spirit toward Anna and in, in your presence on this earth. That you died, you were buried, and you were resurrected. That you have called us to your death burial and you have resurrected us, in you and us. That God, you poured out your spirit in your early church. You've done that throughout church history. And we're sitting here right now believing that we can't quite probably even comprehend how you would like to manifest your presence here, but we would like that. We would love that, Lord. I just believe... Based on this scripture and many other throughout the New Testament, he would say, I would love nothing more than that as well. People of God, what is your conviction? And what will be your preparation? I will pour out my spirit on my people. Amen. And so be it. Jesus, I pray for a church that is absolutely convicted.